Well, as the announcement said, warm winter welcome to you. I see our snow is back. Those of you who were duped into thinking that spring was coming, (laughs) you can forget about that. One of the things that I would like to do more of in this year that we now find ourselves in is to spend time together as a church family, as a community of faith, as the body of Christ, as the building of God, confessing our sin before the Lord, recognizing how great He is, how glorious He is in forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness, lest you be worried that I've become an Anglican or something like that. I'm uh, still a Baptist, but there are various modes for the church to confess. The, the word confession in the Greek is homologeo. It simply means to say the same as. And one of the things that we get to do as a church is to say the same thing as God says. To accept what he says about us and about himself as true. To live in agreement. To recognize our neediness so that we can see his glorious provision. I'd like to uh, share with you a prayer of confession before we look into the perfect law of liberty that sets us free. Can we pray together? Awesome and compassionate God, you have loved us with unfailing, self-giving mercy, but we have not loved you always. You constantly call to us, but we do not listen. You ask us to love, and we have, at times this past week, walked away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. Forgive us, Lord. On certain levels, we have condoned evil, prejudice, warfare, even greed. God of grace, as you come to us this morning in mercy, we repent in spirit and truth. We admit, Lord God, our sin today, and we gratefully receive your forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, amen. Thank you, Lord. If you have your scriptures, turn back with me, please, to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, I'd like to read together with you the first 15 verses of John 16, we still find ourselves in what is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse, whether or not all of this took place in that upper room or whether or not there was movement towards the Garden of Gethsemane, we cannot be sure. But in John chapter 16, certainly we have final, potent, important words that God gives to his men before he departs. And in John 16... Verses 1 and following, we read this. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. 
And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he tells me, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. Father, come now. Help us to hear. Give us ears to hear. Feed us on this bread from heaven. Meet the needs of your people, we ask. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. A small unit of soldiers is surrounded. They're barely holding on. Ammunition is running low. Their position may well be overrun. And then help arrives. Damaging rains are coming. The crops must be brought in, but there is not near enough harvesters. But then help arrives. Huge medical bills and the layoff have conspired to bring a family to the brink of bankruptcy. The home might be lost, but then help arrives. An epidemic is spreading. Many lie sick and dying. A vaccine is desperately needed, but then help arrives. We humans love stories like this. Help arriving in the nick of time to meet a desperate need. When all seems lost, help arrives. Part of the wonder of this passage is that help is on its way, that in fact help is coming. A helper is coming who will meet the disciples in their desperation, in their frustration. We can handle trauma if we know that we are not alone. If there is someone in our corner, on our side, with us, for us, near us, we can handle trauma. I'll remind you of the setting of the passage that we read together. Jesus and his men are having their last few quiet hours together. These are critical truths that he will lay at their feet. Truth, in fact, that the text tells us that they will not fully comprehend until later on. It's like truth that's going to go off like a bomb later on. They don't fully understand it now, but they will then. They will soon head to the Garden of Gethsemane. It will be torches in the night, a flashing sword, you know the story, arrest, mayhem, 
the scattering of the eleven. How are they going to maintain a relationship when he's gone? Will they still be connected to the vine when he's no longer present with them? Will the circle be unbroken? Last Sunday we said that the followers of Christ are called to love, they must expect conflict, and we are not left helpless as Jesus prepares to depart. I wonder if his men didn't look a little bit like a a young sheep that has just been shorn. You ever seen a sheep that's just been shorn? Looks a little pathetic. You know, it looks very, very needy. And I wonder if the disciples don't have that sense that now they're shorn sheep and they're shivering against the cold night. Do they huddle against the shepherd? Are they, are they trying to get close? Do they, do they know that the whirlwind awaits them in the garden? Think of all the details of what's going on in their hearts and their minds. And then understand the details of what's going on in your heart and your mind. God meets them in their need. He prepares them for his departure. It's instruction before separation. This will be for them sustaining truth. This will be for them a map through the minefield. It will be a map for the road that they are called upon to travel. The overarching theme of this passage is that Christ's presence will be replaced by the presence of another helper. The presence of Christ, who they have taught and who they have who has taught them and touched them and helped them and led them and cared for them that's going to go away but there's another helper who is coming help is on the way and it leads us to ask the kinds of questions that may have reverberated in their hearts how will i be helped how when will the helper come what will the helper do All of them, I think, great questions that our text answers well for us. And I've got three markers that I'll I'll raise over the text for us. Maybe more for your blessing than for mine. It will serve to keep me on track. First of all, I I lifted up this marker over verses 1 to 4. There is a pressing need because of the certain persecution. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. I've mentioned it before, but he's preparing his men for trouble. I mentioned last week not being prepared for a fight. And so here in verse 1, he gives them truth so that they, don't, they will not be scandalized. They'll not trip over the trouble and the persecution when it comes. Church history proves that saints in the past have often been persecuted by those claiming to serve God. If you've ever been over, under, or through Fox's Book of Martyrs, that comes profoundly, forcefully to you. People thought they were serving God when all the while they were persecuting God's followers. And so we understand that there is a pressing need, and he informs them of that. If you were to leaf through even Scripture to make the transition from John into the book of Acts, Acts being the the early history of the early church, you realize that by Acts chapter 4, his men are being persecuted. You, you read ahead. Read it for the homework this afternoon, before the game. Read ahead and realize that 
what he said was going to happen to them began almost immediately to happen to them. He warns his men that trouble is just around the river bend, that it's just down the road, so get ready, guys. Don't be ambushed. The glorious gospel that that they were to speak was going to create trouble and tension in their lives. We understand that. If, If you move today in the footsteps of the apostles as messengers, the angelos, the scent of God, and if you move man to the edges and seek to place God in the center, you're going to face a certain amount of kickback. Because most of our friends and our neighbors and even some of our loved ones, they have gotten to the place where they worship the temple of self. They bow before the golden calf of humanity and mankind. And they will not want to hear about a bloody cross as the only means back to the garden. The natural mind resists, resents, and rebels against that. And so when Jesus says, hey guys, trouble's coming, we ought to perk up our ears and listen because the mail has come to our mailbox too. Trouble's coming. If you engage in a good newsing ministry in a bad news world, you need to be able to expect trouble. Now this doesn't mean that we don't do it, It doesn't mean that there is no fruit, that there is no change, that there is no repentance. But it means that along with that ministry, there's going to be tension. Jesus knows that his men will be oppressed. He knows, as the text says, that they will be drugged before councils and kicked out of synagogues. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus the Lamb is the only way of escape from sin and selfishness, Natural man will oppose that, must oppose that. That's why we constantly hear, we constantly hear, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't need God to die for me. I'm doing all right. I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Help was needed because pressure was coming. Rage would boil over, but it would not overwhelm his men. This kind of opposition was proof that there is a war raging against God. Scripture talks about wickedness in high places. We understand that well in the world in which we live. And so there was a pressing need because of certain persecution. He prepares his men. Hey guys, get ready for this. And in preparing his men, he's preparing us as well. I don't want to discourage you as you leave the building today. We want to encourage you. We want to enthuse you. We want to provide you something that will give you joy in your journey. But let's, let's be square about this. If you go out of this place seeking to be a servant of the Most High God, you're probably going to get some kickback. Secondly, this. The amazing benefits of the Messiah's departure. I, I, I lifted that over verses 5 to 7. The amazing benefits, the blessings of Jesus' going away, which sounds strange even to say it today. His men were not without direction. The good, kind chief shepherd explains their situation as his small flock. In verse 6 he says, Because I have said these things 
to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Guys, I know why you're grieving. I know why you're heavy-hearted. I know where you're at emotionally. He, he understands their struggle. He wants them to know that he can see beyond their grief. To them, this is not good news because he's leaving. What possible upside could there be to that? They don't understand that his departure is an essential step in their growth as disciples. Bernard says it well, the braver and more perfect disciple is he who can walk by faith and not by sight only. That's what's about to happen. They're not going to be seeing him, touching him. They can't talk to him in the way that they did. It's coming. Separation is coming. And so this was a groundbreaking statement. In verse 7, when he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. I can't help but wonder if some of the guys didn't say, you've got to be kidding me. To our advantage that you go away? Many of us in this room have been near someone who has gone away. Our hearts have been broken by those who have departed from us. We know what it's like to be near a loved one who is suffering physically, who is in pain, who is uncomfortable physically. And we know that because of their believing trust in Jesus Christ, it is to their advantage that they go away. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so it grieves us to say it, but it's to your advantage to go away. But it is not to our advantage that they go away. It is not to our advantage. Our hearts ache. We, we groan. We understand that there is now a wall of separation between us. We know that it's temporary as the people of faith, but it's not to our advantage. And so to hear Jesus say, it is to your advantage that I go away, is really fascinating. I wonder if the disciples, I wonder if Peter didn't scratch his head, grab his big burly beard and say, how so? We know John says that if everything that was written about what Jesus said was written, it would fill the world, and so there's a lot that's not said. But you can understand, as humans, the questions that would erupt in our minds. The advantage is not for the king of love, but for those that he loves. Think about what's just about to happen. As hard as it is to believe, it was for the disciples' advantage. The disciples' advantage that Jesus is arrested, that his human ministry concludes to their advantage that Jesus is beaten and mocked and sentenced to execution, to their advantage that Jesus is nailed to the cross, that Jesus dies in the company of criminals, that his lifeless body is laid in a borrowed tomb. How can that be? All of this is difficult to believe, but it's the paradox of the redemption story. Whenever Jesus Christ has something hard to say, he says it. He doesn't keep back or let back something that will be to our advantage because it is difficult for us to get our minds around. Jesus tells us hard things. Now he tells us those things in love, but it's important that even as humans in our frailty, in our consummate terminal humanity, it's important that we realize that sorrow and insight 
can be woven together. They can be melded together. They can be welded together. That's the glory of the Word of God. It is both bitter and sweet. To paraphrase Lewis, God whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts to us in our distress. Would his men trust him in the shadow of the encroaching storm? Well, brothers and sisters, if we live long enough, we will know well, we will know intimately sorrow. That's part of the call upon our lives as pilgrims. Here we see God doing work in their lives and in our lives. He asks the question, has, has sorrow filled your heart? Does that mean that God is punishing them, that he is mad at them? No, it is for their advantage. He, he wanted his men to know that he had a plan. And for us in 2020, it's far easier for us to see this plan with the completion of the revelation of God to humanity. How was it better? What was the benefit of his going away? Well, we know simply, as we read the text, that, that his presence would be replaced by another presence. So let me summarize here for you. How was it better? Well, it's better in a number of different ways. Now Jesus can be with every believer all the time. We speak of having God inside of us. When he was outside, when he was in physical form, he certainly cannot accomplish that kind of ministry. It's not omnipresence in that sense. He was with disciples at one time. He was bound by our time-space continuum, but as he goes away and the helper comes, who's going to teach and convict and counsel, he can be with all of us. That's why as believers sitting here today, we're, we're hearing from, we have this internal counselor who's dealing with our spirits all the time it could not be so were jesus still present we can also understand him better he can now work from inside he can write on our hearts if you will we have him now in our ear in a way that that the disciples did not thirdly we come to understand his heavenly rule first it's cross and then it's crown there's a necessary progression in his work. There's a necessary graduation in his work. With the atonement accomplished, there is no need for him to stay here. When he cries from the cross, it is finished. It really was finished. And so we understand his heavenly rule and all that his word tells us about that. And finally, we now understand the kind of incredible transformation that took place in the lives of the disciples. When you see the disciples, and we've been working our way through John's gospel, when you see the disciples beforehand, how many times do we see them confused or arrogant or selfish or mean-spirited or small-minded? How many times do we see them insecure and afraid? But after Jesus leaves and the helper takes up residence in Acts 2, it is in fact a whole new ballgame. The wise, fully surrendered, bold, gracious men of velvet and steel, what advantage his absence has in their lives. His men were not left as orphans. They were not troops without reinforcements. And this reminds us, brothers and sisters, that neither are we. Neither are we. 
The helper that was available to the disciples from Acts 2 on is the helper that we now delight in. The worst thing for the church to do is to forget about the ministry of God the Spirit. I hope that he's not become the forgotten God for us. Love Jesus, love the Father. I don't really get this mystical, mysterious ministry of God the Spirit. There is a helper who is available to us. That brings us thirdly and finally to this. Over verses 8 to 15, I've written this. The internal work of the Holy Spirit in the world. In verse 8, it begins with listing the profound ministry that the Holy Spirit will accomplish in Christ's followers. I'll I'll summarize it, and then we'll expand on it a little bit. He's going to convict in verse 8, we're told. He will guide, verse 13 tells us. And in verse 14 it says, he will glorify. He will convict, he will guide, he will glorify. First in verse 8 it says, he will convict. The text tells us he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Sin is the truth about man. Righteousness is truth about God. Judgment is the inevitable combination of these two truths. It almost doesn't need to be said, but these are not pleasant subjects. You mean part of what the helper will do is he will make me feel miserable inside when I sin and break the law of God. My response to that from the text is yes. That's exactly what the text is telling us. It is the mercy of God that makes us miserable when we sin. Now you need to chew on that for a little bit. I know... We had a storm last night and all that goes with it. But just think about that. When we sin, we are made miserable because God's Spirit has taken up residence within us. And that's a very good thing. You know why? Because in our misery, we want to change, we want to repent, we need to change direction. What a great ministry. He's proving to us that that we're unrighteous, but that God is righteous. He's proving to us that he's made a way of escape from our sin and our misery, and he calls us constantly towards this. That's why some of us this past week, when we sinned, we felt so crummy. Did you ever feel like that and say, thank you, Lord, for the great blessing of your conviction. I have not been totally truthful. No, I've been a liar. And I feel hideous. And something's got to give. I have not put a guard over my eyes. I've lusted, Lord. And I feel the, the, the dirtiness of that. The shame of that. Lord, I've been so proud. It's all about me and what people think of me. And I feel so crummy. That's the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that calls us internally to change. And it's a very good thing. Because, brothers and sisters, if you feel that, if you know that keenly, thank the Lord, it means he's inside doing what he does. Now, if you're not a believer here this morning, you don't feel that. It's like, no big deal. Whatever. So what? Now, I know that there's still a general conscience, but you don't have the 
internal ministry of God, the Spirit, dealing with you in the same way, the same depth. You have a sort of a general conscience, but you, uh, you don't feel the forcefulness, the intimacy of God's ministry. Judgment combines sin and righteousness in a way. Why? Verse 9 says, because they did not believe in me. In their unbelief, in their rejection of Jesus, when they would be proven to be sinners, they didn't have the same forcefulness of that. Erdman, I think, expresses it well. Christ is good and holy and pure. To reject him is to convict oneself of being opposed to goodness and holiness and purity and love. You've got this internal ministry. You ask yourself, what's the helper going to do? Well, the helper is going to convict you of sin. He's going to make you miserable. He's going to hound you, if you will, from heaven until you change direction and change course. And the people of God should rise up and thank him for that. Otherwise, our downward skid would not be arrested. Otherwise, we'd continue further and further away, out of orbit with God, our creator and maker. Holy Spirit ministers to us and serves us by convincing us that we are sinners in need and that the only way of escape is the Lamb of God. In its insanity, the world regarded Jesus as a sinner but sees itself as righteous. The world pronounces judgment on God and seeks to slay him and silence him and be rid of him. Conviction is the Holy Spirit's way of making an upside upside down world right side up. And it's not just a sense of unrighteousness about big sins, but about all sins. Pride and anger and self-interest. We don't define it. God defines it. And then we also realize that there are Ways in which he reminds us, in which we're not going to understand everything in the here and now, but we will further up and further in. So he will convict, according to verse 8 and following. In verse 13, he will guide. For some of us looking for direction and wisdom and counsel, and I want to know the will of the Lord, you realize that God has placed inside of you God. God has given to us this sacred trust of one who will lead, who will show us the way, who will teach us, who will inform us. He will guide us, it says, into all truth. Not some truth, not portions of truth. His desire is, in fact, to direct us. Brothers and sisters, too many of us never really stop to listen. Too many of us cannot slow down. We find ourselves as approval junkies on a treadmill and will never be still enough in order that he will guide us until sometimes he stills us. He sets us aside so that we'll be still and listen. I don't think anybody summarized the the work of God the Spirit better than H.B. Charles. He summarizes it this, this way. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. I'll say that again. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. And so if you're talking big picture, I never know what the big picture is. There's the big picture. What glorious truth it is for the children of God. And if that's not enough, at the end of verse 13, this guidance is also prophetic. He will tell you things to come. 
The idea is, is that he informed the disciples what was coming, what was just down the road, and he's doing that still for us. Thirdly and finally this, what's the helper do? What is the internal work of God the Spirit? He will glorify me, verse 14 says. He will glorify me. He will shine the light on, he will emphasize God the Son's work. That's why when we sing of our Redeemer, when we praise him, when we, when we declare lyrically truth about him, that's why we find ourselves, many of us find ourselves lost in the wonder of that, that he would love us. Of all of our sin and our brokenness, that he'd care for us, that he'd seek to make us whole, that he would sanctify and clean us in light of his beauty. The message is the message of the Godhead. It's the message of the three in one. It's God's message to man. It's not some secret transmission from a shadow. The truth is, is that the helper, the paraclete, the comer alongside her, would make perfectly clear truth that was consistent with the Father and with the Son. There's no sort of dueling banjos here between Old and New Covenant. There's perfect synchronicity. There's not this sense in which we're hiding parts of God and parts of his character because we're afraid of that and there's sort of ugly parts to God. It's not that at all. It's that he's utterly, wonderfully, majestically sovereign and beautiful. And the more we get to experience him, the more confidence we have in the one who is our helper. God doesn't need us to filter. He doesn't need us to edit. He doesn't need to, us to cover up his character, his nature, or his dealings with mankind. It's wonderfully, gloriously consistent. It is the brightness, the effulgence, if I could use an old word, it is the effulgence of his glory. Brothers and sisters, if you're playing games with God, the omnipresent, omniscient God is not good news to you. But if you rightly understand that you sin and need a Savior, this passage is very good news. This is the song of the helper. This is the lyric of the Lord's presence. We understand from this text that God is near. I close with this. Clarence Darrow was a famous attorney he was the attorney that opposed William Jennings Bryan in 1925, the subject of evolution being taught in public schools. It's commonly called the Scopes Monkey Trial. Years later, a man named Dr. John Herman met the famous lawyer. Both of the men were in their later years, and as they, as they talked together, Dr. Herman asked Clarence Darrow a profound question. He said to him, now that you've come this far in life and you're not doing much lecturing or writing anymore, how would you sum up your life? Without a hitch in his movement, Darrow immediately picked up a Bible that was laying nearby. This surprised Herman because Darrow spent most of his life publicly ridiculing the Word of God. The famous lawyer opened the Bible to Luke chapter 5, which is the passage when Jesus preaches from Peter's boat. Christ tells Peter, launch out into the deep and lay down your nets for a catch. Peter answers the Lord in Luke 5, 5, Master, we have toiled all night and taken 
or caught nothing. The famous lawyer towards the end of his life said, this verse in the Bible describes my life. I have toiled, I have toiled all night and taken nothing. He put down his Bible and he said, I've lived a life without purpose, without meaning, without direction. I don't know where I came from and I don't know what I'm doing here. And worst of all, I don't know what's going to happen when I punch out of here. What a tragic declaration. This is a man, brothers and sisters, without the helper. May it not be said that we, your people, don't understand the ministry of the helper who in the nick of time comes to us and meets us in our need. A helper who never forsakes, who counsels and guides and guards and convicts us. John 16 stands in stark contrast to that kind of hopelessness that we find all around us. Father, come now. Help us. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the Helper. Father, I praise your name that as I sin and when I sin, I am rightly miserable. Father, I pray that we, your people, would recognize your handiwork as you imprint yourself on our hearts and on our minds. We want to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, so help us, Lord. As we prepare to leave this place, I pray, Lord God, that you would equip us, sharpen us, focus us on eternal things. Give us a heart for the lost. I'm mindful, Lord God, that Satan has no happy old people. But Lord, that you have millions of them. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our hands and our hearts, that we might serve you well. I thank you for the help of the Helper. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.